and rebuilding to the church. Um, he is a lifelong Methodist, a lifelong preacher. Um, a, uh, he was a professor at Duke Divinity School, which is how our church got connected with him. Uh, he's a very fun, loving, funny man, um, but he can also get very real very fast. So um, Peter was kind enough to share his Sunday with us, so um, it's fun to have him with us. And actually, on a personal note, he was one of the ones that helped me in my discernment of my call to ministry. So it's always a little interesting um, when you sit down with Peter, you never know how things are going to Chapter 5, listen now for the gospel of Christ. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding round him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore, and then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, and so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came, and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John. Uh, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. And so they pulled their boats up on the shore and they left everything and they followed him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. (coughs) Well, now it's a great joy to be with you again in this pulpit. I've always enjoyed the times that I have come to Alamo Heights and am grateful to be here once again and I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today I was asked to preach about hearing God's call on our lives and the real challenge I suppose was which scripture to focus on because the trouble is there are so many because the whole Bible is full of people hearing God calling them. Wherever you look in scripture, people are getting called, women and men, children even, shepherds, farmers, slave girls, government officials, daughters-in-law, exiles, immigrants, IRS officials, maybe, fishermen and fanatics. It never stops. They all get summonsed, they all hear God calling their name, and in most cases, what they hear disturbs their lives and leaves them changed forever. So I've had a hard time, but I've got to keep to time because this is America and God forbid we should worship for more than one hour exactly. So I'm going to lift up just three biblical passages, moments of call. But before I do so, here comes the Surgeon General's warning. 
When preachers start talking about call, I want to warn you that people get called. And don't think it's just other people. Coming to church carries a risk that your life may be disturbed. That you may hear a call that disturbs today. And it all begins when we start paying attention to God. When you start paying attention to God, somebody may call your name. Here's a young man who goes to the temple just as you've come to church today to pray. We don't know what was going on in church just at that moment. Maybe the people were singing a hymn or listening to scripture. Maybe somebody was preaching. Maybe the choir was singing. We don't know. But suddenly Isaiah says simply, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his robe filled the temple. In other words, in that moment, it didn't really matter what was going on in the church. It was all God. The whole place was filled for him with God. And that was all that mattered. And he heard this amazing chorus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of his glory. And Isaiah finds himself breaking open inside. He knows that he and, and his people are in a bit of trouble. He cries out in his brokenness and God's angel comes to him with a very painful gift, a burning coal which touches his lips and cauterizes them with the healing that hurts, with the pain of God's forgiveness. It can be a very painful experience. And then when this cleansing is done, God says, well now who will, who will go for me? Who, who shall I send? And this idiot Isaiah says, here I am, Lord. Here, here. Send me. Of course, it's just an old Bible story. It doesn't happen like that anymore, does it? Well, don't be too sure. In the little community that I once ministered in, I remember a rather tough character who sometimes was persuaded by his wife to come to church. And I used to wonder what I could say to reach his stony heart. And one day after church, he, he said he wanted to see me. God spoke to me today, he said. And I immediately started going over my sermon in my mind, wondering what remarkable phrase had grabbed his heart at last. And then he punched, he punctured my, my, my little bubble. And this is what he said. He says, I, I don't always know what you're talking about. But all I know is when I knelt for communion and you put the bread in my hands and you said the body of Christ, God spoke to me. See, when a faithful congregation gathers for worship, when praise is offered, when the story is told, when the bread is broken, when people pay attention to God as you are paying attention right now, God happens. That's when somebody may call your name and you may hear the call that disturbs. 
Or perhaps, let's turn now to the book of Acts. When you begin to wonder if you're on the wrong side of God's struggle, somebody may be calling you and disturbing you. There's a very different scenario now. This time we've got a rising star in the field of religious bigotry and God knows. I've never known a country with a, as much religious bigotry as this one. He has one of those intense people who usually wear dark suits and want to tell us all what we're doing wrong in our lives. Who want us all to think the same way. Want to make sure that everybody's towing their idea of morality. And in this case, there's a, a small sect which has got way out of line. They've decided to follow the wrong leader, somebody called Jesus. And they need to be taught a lesson. And one of them has been on trial and has been sentenced to death by stoning. And our young fanatic could not be more thrilled. He longs to see this heretic meet his death. He would love to throw a few rocks himself, but first he's got to serve his apprenticeship. So instead, he, he's happy to hold the cloaks and the clothes of the execution squad. His moment will come, and it does. But the trouble is when his moment does come, and he is promoted to being chief persecution officer. The more fanatical he gets, the more unsettled his heart becomes. What he can't get out of his mind are the things that happened around that young man's death. The words of that young man saying, you know, you always fight against the Holy Spirit like fathers, like sons. Was there ever a prophet that you didn't persecute? The picture of that young man looking into the sky and saying, I see a rift in the sky and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The words of incredible grace of that young man who says, Father, don't, don't hold this to their account. Well, these things disturb Saul's sleep for months. And somehow all his moral righteousness tastes like ash in his mouth in comparison to the truth and the faith and the love and the grace of Stephen. Well, you know the rest of it, how Saul becomes even more driven, how he takes his persecution team to Damascus, how he gets knocked off his horse by the risen Jesus, how he hears Jesus saying, Saul... Why are you persecuting me? And in the end, instead of getting rid of the Jesus followers, he becomes one himself. He lays his type A personality at the disposal of Jesus and he becomes the most effective strategist our faith has ever known. Of course, it's just an old Bible story. But don't be too sure. Because you know, almost worse than the uncalled life is the wrongly called life. 
It must be scary to discover sometime late in one's life that your gifts, your intelligence, your passion have been spent on things that are on the wrong side of God's purposes. You see, it's not only about becoming preachers like Saul of Tarsus, it's about discerning the movement of the Spirit and getting with God's program. When I was a young man, there was only one thing I wanted to do. I had only one passion, I wanted to be a naval officer. I became quite proficient with some very destructive weaponry. And then one day when I was standing on the cliffs overlooking the bay at our naval academy, I just knew that somebody was calling my name and I was being deeply disturbed from way inside of myself. And although I didn't want it at all, I was angry to hear it. I knew that I had to go in a different direction. When I look back, I'm so glad I did. Because the military in South Africa was used on the wrong side of God's struggle. It was used as part of our government's oppression of its own people. And I think many of my colleagues who became very senior officers, a couple of them even admirals, today they live with questions about where they put their energy and their lives. They were told they were part of a crusade against evil, but it wasn't true. They were the evil. They became the evil. Even the church can make this mistake. Time and again in the history of the church, we've been on the wrong side of God's struggle. We've excluded people. We've refused people. We've hurt people. All because we think being right is more important than being loving. The Dutch Reformed Church in my country supported the evil doctrine of apartheid. They were the apartheid government at prayer. They said to the evil men who ran our country, it's okay, it's okay to be like that. It's in the Bible. And the day came when they had to confess publicly, we were wrong. We misled God's people. We are responsible for the suffering of so many. You see, the more passionate you are, the more dangerous it is if you're investing your passions in the wrong cause. So be careful you don't end up like Saul hearing a voice saying, why are you persecuting me, Saul? You may not weigh much, I may not weigh much, but in the words of the poet, when justice hangs in the balance, you do get to choose which side shall feel the stubborn ounces of your weight. So where are you investing those stubborn answers? And is God asking you, get with the program? And then the last is this. When God asks you for help and when your trust is suddenly stretched, somebody may be calling your name and that may disturb you too. Our final scenario is really quite comical. 
Here's a fellow who has uh, a fishing business, who's grown up on the water, who knows the lake as well as anybody. He's passionate about fishing and one day he is confronted by a carpenter. And the carpenter climbs into his boat and tells him to push a little way from the shore. And then the carpenter proceeds to use his boat as a pulpit and, you know, the fisherman's not quite sure about all this. I don't know whether he's hiding somewhere in the stern sheets. A little embarrassed. Now, it's enough to be asked for that kind of help. Maybe, maybe he's secretly proud that he can do his little bit for religion. But when the carpenter tells Simon to put into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch, now that's a different matter altogether. Simon tries to be polite. Rabbi, we were at work all night and we never caught, we never caught anything. Which being interpreted means, why don't you go and teach your grandma to suck eggs? But there's something about Jesus and the way he says things. And so Simon finally says, all right, we'll let down our nets. And of course, the rest is history. And the nets fill to breaking point. And Simon has to call to help. And they bring in a great catch. And like the priest who gets a hole in one playing golf on Sunday, Simon can't boast about his catch in the pub that night. I mean, for goodness sake, what if somebody asked him, well, how did you know where to put your nets down? Is Simon going to say, well, a carpenter told? But he feels pretty rotten. And... But Jesus laughs. And Jesus says, well, now, look, I'm going to give you a new passion. From now on, it's going to be people. Come on, let's go fishing. Of course, it's just an old Bible story. But you know, sometimes that's the way we get called. Jesus comes at us gradually. Perhaps you give a little bit of your money and your time and find that it's good to be engaged with the work of Jesus, but he has a way of pushing you out of the shallows and into the deep water, where instead of doing him a favor, you find yourself having to trust his guidance, his leading, his judgment. And when you do, then like Simon, you find that life holds so much more than you ever knew, and undreamed of things begin to happen when you lay at his disposal your resources, your talents, your wealth, when you begin to bet your life on what Jesus wants. A friend of mine counsels students about their future and says, you know, most times we think we have life mapped out only to feel the nudge of God leading us in a new direction. Perhaps that's the message that Jesus meant to convey when he said, follow me. Many of you have heard of Dr. Will Willimon. He was the dean of Duke Chapel for 21 years before he was silly enough to become a bishop. And while he was at Duke Chapel, he sometimes used to get into quite serious trouble, you know, because a very irate couple of parents would drive up in their big car and they would berate him. And they'd say, what have you done to our son? You know, we sent him to Duke so that he could become a lawyer and so that he'd go make a lot of money on Wall Street. And now he tells us that he's dropped out of all that and he's going to work in a storefront law company. 
He's going to work with the poor. Good grief. What have you done to him? Or maybe they say, our daughter, she just joined your chapel choir and we were pleased about that and now she's off to Haiti or somewhere God-forsaken like that and she wants to become a preacher. That's not why we're paying the big bucks to Duke University. What has she been listening? What have you been telling her? Well, I don't know how Will used to reply uh, to these uh, challenges. But it might have gone something like this. Well, you shouldn't have sent them to a campus with this chapel towering over it where so many young people come just to go to church because, you know, sometimes they're just sitting in here and we're doing church and one of them sees the Lord high and lifted up. And before we know it, they're saying, here am I, send me. Or maybe he said, well, you should have warned them not to get too close to this dangerous man called Jesus. With his ethic of loving the marginalized more than he loves the rules. Who thinks it's more important to be good than it is to be right. With an all-embracing love because he showed them how cruel were some of the religious attitudes they grew up with. And all they want to be sure of now is that they're on the right side of God's struggle for the rest of their lives. Or it might be something quite simple. Something like what a friend of mine said to me once when we were just driving along in the motor car. And out of the blue he said, Isn't it an amazing privilege when a real God calls you by your name? 